Good morning. Welcome to Oakwood Community Church. My name is Shane. I'm one of the pastors here. I just want a stool if I could. I'm going to steal that from you. Thank you. Good morning, good morning. Glad you guys are here. Thanks again for braving the cold. Uh, I know the ice is, you know, the water thawed and the ice is refrozen. It's nasty cold uh, out there. So thanks for making your way here uh, and being with us this morning. And so let me get set up and we'll get started uh, with the message today. PD, our lead pastor, uh, is in warmer climates this morning. I got a uh, text from him. See if this comes out. There we go. I got a text from him late last night uh, that they arrived safely, and he said it was 60 and sunny uh, on the beach, and he said, there's no snow, and I kindly replied back, yes, I'd much rather be in the white fluffy stuff that he's in than the white fluffy stuff uh, that we are dealt with here. It still boggles my mind when people actually choose to go on vacation to colder climates. You know, I don't get that. For me, I just don't get that. So uh, they, they needed this time to get away. It's kind of an annual uh, tradition. They get away down to the coast. So be praying for them. They can just rest and relax and enjoy uh, time as a family uh, and come back safely uh, next week. So uh, it's my privilege in the midst of all that uh, to be able to share God's word with you a couple times this month. Uh, we thought about making Pastor Ben do that after uh, his week away at camp, but he did need a little extra sleep, I'm sure, uh, this week. I did make him get up a little earlier even than he needed to this morning to be here to make sure things were going smooth. So thanks for that. I think things are going well. When I preached a couple weeks ago, we had some technical difficulties. And by the time I got here on stage for this service, my heart was just pounding because we're trying to fix everything. So, so far, so good this morning. Uh, we're grateful for that. Welcome to all those who are tuning in online, either live or watching this a little bit later. We're glad that you can worship with us uh, in that way. I encourage you guys uh, to have your Bibles open. We're going to be in First Thessalonians uh, this uh, week as we continue this series in the Gospel Project, Come Lord Jesus. And again, you're going to kind of get a bigger overview uh, of First Thessalonians, and we'll get into that here in a little bit. I couldn't help, uh, as we were singing that last song, uh, I hadn't made the connection, uh, as I thought about just how to introduce the topic this morning, um, I couldn't help uh, but just feel a real connection with that, and I'll tell you why here in a little bit. Do we have any, any people who have served in the armed, armed services here with us uh, this morning? I uh, appreciate you and your, your service, your sacrifice, and all of that your family has endured for that. We know how important that is for our freedoms uh, here in America, and we're grateful for that. Uh, I was reading a story uh, this week. Anyone know Scott O'Grady? Story of Scott O'Grady. He was a, uh, he's a retired uh, U.S. Air Force uh, fighter pilot, and in the mid-90s, uh, he was stationed over in Italy, and uh, part of what they were doing was kind of establishing a no-fly zone. Uh, during that time in Bosnia, there was a terrible civil war, all kinds of atrocities uh, going on, genocide, uh, like they hadn't seen really since Hitler and all that was going on there. It was just a nasty, ugly time uh, in the history of that part of the world. And the U.S. was there uh, just as a peacekeeping force, uh, not bombing and doing all that kind of stuff. But they were just patrolling. Part of his job was just to patrol a no-fly zone. They were trying to make sure that the, the warring factions weren't going in with bombs and just bombing each other that way. They were trying to, to, to limit those types of um, losses and things like that. So their job was to go in and fly uh, and on routine patrols and just keep uh, the peace and to make sure nobody else was in the airspace. And so he was out on patrol. I think it was in, uh, let me make sure I get my dates right. It was June 2nd, 1995. Uh, he and another pilot were out on patrol. Uh, and if you can imagine being in enemy territory and their job was to go and basically they flew ovals. 
They flew in this oval circuit. How many of you guys would love to be flying in a plane over enemy territory in a predictable pattern? Over and over. That, that does not sound fun at all, does it, right? And so they thought they kind of knew where all the missile uh, batteries were in terms of their radar and their intelligence and things like that. Well, unbeknownst to them, you know, the enemy had been tracking their patterns and they had moved a mobile rocket launcher uh, basically right under uh, the area that they were at. And on this day when they were out patrolling uh, and going around, they at one point got kind of a quick alert that there was something coming and it quickly went away. And that was actually his, his partner uh, that got the warning on his uh, system. Uh, and then it quickly went away. Uh, Scott never had one show up on his. Uh, but before he knew it, a uh, missile hit his plane about 10 feet behind his cockpit, exploded around them. Out of you know, the training and reaction, he pulled you know, the, uh, the ejection handle, was launched out. He was about five miles high, going about 500 miles an hour, if you can imagine, uh, ejecting in the midst of an explosion, five miles high, 500 miles an hour. And what's he thinking? He's, this is it. My life's over. And... Uh, so he had to figure out what to do. They have an automatic system. When you get down to a certain altitude, it'll deploy on itself. He's like, I'm not waiting for that. Like he pulled the override. And so he's up, miles and miles up. He pulled it. Thankfully, his chute hadn't burned up or in malfunction. It actually deployed. Uh, but here he is over enemy territory. Half hour it takes him to descend from five miles. And he just knows everybody's just watching for him, right? The enemy's just watching for him coming down. Uh, to land, and he's going to be surrounded and pursued as soon as he arrives and on the ground. So he lands in enemy territory, and uh, there were, he could, he could see people, physically see people coming towards them, and he just hits the ground running, grabs his survival pack, and, and goes and tries to find cover as soon as possible. And so uh, he was there, uh, and you know our military has a motto, right? When someone's stuck behind enemy lines, what's the motto? No one left behind, right? And so he knows that. He knows uh, his people are going to be looking out for him, but he's got to figure out, first he's got to evade, he's got to survive, and then he's got to find a way to make contact you know, with them. This goes on for, for five or six nights. I think he was on the ground for six days or so uh, over there, uh, just hiding in the brush, wet, constant rain, very little food and water rations, uh, hypothermia setting in. I think he got some infection in his foot. Uh, he's just in a bad spot. And so while he's over there, um, it's amazing to me. So I've learned a little bit about him this past week as I've read more about the story. He's actually a believer. Um, after he retired from the Air Force, he went to Dallas Seminary and got his uh, graduate degree there, and he goes around speaking. He shares about his faith in Christ. He looks back on those six days. I'll tell you what happened here in a little bit. He looks back on those six days uh, as one of the most powerful and positive six days in his life. How many of you guys think, in the midst of being stuck behind enemy lines, wet, hungry, starving, not knowing if you're going to survive, being pursued by all kinds of people, your life on the line, not sure you're going to go home and see your family. How many of you guys think you could look back on a situation like that and say, that was one of the most positive and powerful six days of my life? It just boggles my mind. But he says he was able to do that primarily because of his faith. Uh, his love for God, his love for his family, his love for his country. And that's the thing that kept him going in the midst of that. He said he was praying unceasingly during that time. He had all kinds of time as he was laying and trying to be quiet and trying not to draw any attention to himself, to reflect on life, to spend time thinking and praying and, ta- and talking to God and, and crying out to God. 
uh, in the midst of that time. And so he was rescued. Eventually, he was able to get to a place where he could make radio contact. Uh, within a number of hours, uh, the Marines came in and, and extracted him and got him out of there. An amazing story, but he never gave up hope in what was probably, in my mind, a hopeless situation. You know, it's amazing to me that he made it to the ground after drifting 30 minutes down, that they weren't just ready there to grab him immediately. Uh, but, but God did rescue him in the midst of that. And I thought about that song we were just singing a little bit. You, you, know, what, you delivered me from my enemies, right? I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. How, could, how passionately could he sing that song now, thinking back on his life and the situation, circumstances that he went through? The reality is, you know, most of us aren't going to necessarily be stuck behind enemy lines on our own with a small survival pack, fighting for our lives, hoping the rescue squad is going to come in and get us. We're not going to find ourselves in that situation, but we are going to find ourselves facing adversity, facing affliction, facing all kinds of challenges and maybe persecution for our faith. And as we get into Scripture today, uh, we're going to see that that's what's happening to the believers in, in Thessalonica. And Paul was concerned that they weren't going to be able to survive in the midst of that. And so uh, we're going to see that he writes to them uh, out of concern for that and the afflictions that they were facing. The big idea uh, that we're going to look at today uh, is this. I think it's coming. We must advance even in the midst of adversity. We must advance even in the midst of adversity. I know that was uh, something that Scott was feeling when he was behind enemy lines and never giving up hope. He wanted to continue to evade. He wanted to continue to survive. He wanted to continue to believe uh, that, the, that they were coming back for him and that that hope would not be ill uh, and in vain and that he'd be able to come home and, and tell of the story of his survival and their faithfulness. As we come to this series, we continue this series, we've been looking a lot at Paul's uh, missionary journeys, his, uh, his preaching of the gospel, uh, which obviously got him in trouble. Uh, lots of persecution, lots of challenges, lots of afflictions, lots of adversity that he faced, and he's imprisoned in Rome. Thessalon- uh, Thessalonica in this letter is actually earlier, so we're kind of jumping back a little bit in Paul's story. This is probably one of the earliest letters uh, that we have from Paul, probably written around 50, 51 AD. And Paul spent time uh, early on, uh, I think it was in his second missionary journey, when he spent time in Thessalonica. And so before we jump into chapters 4 and 5, which is where we're going to focus on today, I just want to give you kind of a big picture of how that church started uh, and what leads us up to the chapter that we're going to be in uh, today. So before I do that, let me pray for us. Uh, just prepare our hearts for getting into God's Word, and then we'll look at that a little bit. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. I thank you for Paul's letters and uh, for the Word of God. And as we read these, uh, we, uh, we can understand that this is a real-life situation. Uh, lives run the line, uh, both in terms of physical and spiritually for eternity. And, and Paul and his love for you and his love for the church. Uh, he, he shared so much of that in these letters that he's given us. So we just pray today you'd help us to tune in, help us to get a sense for, of what was going on uh, in Paul's heart and the, and the church there at that time, and help us to understand, Lord, what you're trying to say to us this morning as we live faithfully for you in this day and age. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we got our, faith, uh, our trusty little map back up there. Uh, and Thessalonia, uh, Thessalonica, Thessalonians, the Thessalonica is up here uh, in Macedonia, in that yellow area. And so during Paul's second missionary journey, um, 
he spent some time there. And you get that backstory actually in Acts 17. And so we're not going to read through all of it, but I do want to give you some chunks uh, today of kind of leading up to where we're at because I think it's going to help you understand uh, Paul's concern and what he's writing and why he's writing what he did. So in Acts 17, uh, Paul and Silas uh, were on a missionary journey and they spent some time there. It says this, when he passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica uh, where, they were, uh, there were, there was a Jewish synagogue. And this, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from Scripture, explaining and proving uh, that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, and they formed a mob and started a riot in the city. Sound familiar? We kind of see that kind of situation happening quite a bit from Jesus on. Uh, They rushed into Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men, who have caused trouble all over the world, have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, and they made Jason and the others post bond uh, and let them go. A little bit later, it says, when the Jews in Thessalonica... So Paul from there, uh, Paul and Silas actually left the city. So they spent three or four weeks uh, here. It says three Sabbath days. So three or four weeks they're there uh, teaching in the synagogue and, and meeting with believers who are coming to believe in Jesus and encouraging them in the faith and building them up. Uh, but they, they rose up this big disturbance. The Jews were jealous. They rose a uh, mob up and, and this hostility uh, began towards uh, the believers there. Uh, so imprisonment, uh, beatings, other things were probably happening there. Uh, and it got so bad that uh, Paul and Silas had to flee. And so they go out uh, and they went over to Berea uh, and it says, uh, later when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, they, sent, uh, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. So the Thessalon- in Thessalonica, they're, they're continually causing problems for Paul and Silas and the believers, uh, trying to snuff out. Uh, and it came back to that core message, preaching uh, Jesus was the true king, uh, which was totally against Roman teaching right at, at that time, right? And the idea that Caesar was the only king that people should be loyal to. And so... Uh, all kinds of problems started uh, when, they, when they began this church in Thessalonica. So Paul and Silas had to escape uh, from that area. Um, but it started right there where Paul was proclaiming Jesus as king in the midst of persecution. Uh, and, and that's the backstory uh, where this church started. Uh, and then from there we, we come back to the letter uh, to 1 Thessalonians. Uh, Paul wrote two letters to Thessalonians. I'll mention the other one towards the end. Uh, but in 1 Thessalonians 1, we see that uh, the Thessalonians turned to God in spite of the suffering that was going on. Uh, I won't read it all, but 1 Thessalonians 1, we see a few things. Uh, Paul says in verse 2, We always want to thank you, uh, thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before God and Father uh, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you uh, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us uh, and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. 
Uh, and later on, it mentions how you know, they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And so uh, the, from the beginning, uh, this church was facing persecution, trouble, affliction, adversity. And Paul's just giving thanks that they responded to God, turned away from their idols, and served the living and true God in the midst of that. And, and that's chapter 1 in a nutshell. Move on to chapter 2. Uh, and Paul's talking about how he shared not only the gospel with them, but his very life. And just a few verses there. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. Uh, we had pre- previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you uh, his gospel in spite of strong opposition. Uh, and then we'll pick it up in verse 8. Uh, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and our hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Uh, in the next few verses, he continues to talk about the afflictions and the struggles and the trials uh, that they endured in the midst of that. But Paul uh, wasn't there just sharing the message. He was sharing his very life with them, loving on them in, in terms of leading them to Christ. Uh, and so Paul has a special relationship there. And that's what I love about Paul's letters like this. Last time when I was after preaching a couple weeks ago, he was writing to the Colossians, who he hadn't met in person uh, but you can still see his love and his passion. Here, he spent time with him. He probably bled with them. He went through some really difficult things. And when you go through those things together, it bonds you with people. And you can sense Paul's deep love and devotion and concern for the believers in Thessalonica. Chapter 3, uh, this will be kind of the end of our, our little survey leading up to where we're going today. Uh, Paul sends Timothy to find out about their faith. So again, they had to leave town because of the persecution. They were probably going to be killed if they hung around. Uh, so they left town, but they're concerned. They're worried. Uh, they're behind enemy lines, so to speak, right? And Paul's wondering, is their faith going to have survived in the midst of that kind of an environment when they're being attacked and imprisoned and beaten and persecuted? He's not sure. And so we picked it up in, in chapter 3, and we see a little bit why Paul uh, was writing to them. Actually, I'll start in 217. He says, But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For I wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. For what is our hope and our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our gl- glory and joy. In chapter 3, verse 1, So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens, We sent Timothy, who was our brother and God's fellow worker, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in the faith so that no one uh, would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. Uh, so there you see his longing for them, his care for them. He wants to go to them. He wants to know what's going on. He's afraid that maybe in the midst of all the persecution that he told them was going to come, uh, that they may have fallen away. But in the next verse, uh, 
verse 6 in chapter 3. But Timothy has just now come to us from you, and he has brought good news about your faith and love. And so that's really what chapter 3 is about. We, we just were worried about you. We were afraid you were going to be snuffed out because of the struggles and trials and, and persecutions. So we sent Timothy, and oh, praise God, we heard that your faith and your love is strong. You're continuing in the faith. And so he was concerned that their faith might have get snuffed out, that they might have died behind enemy lines. But he hears a good report from Timothy, and that encourages him. And so that leads us in uh, to chapters 4 and 5, where we're going to kind of give you an overview today, uh, where he continues to encourage them in the faith. And so uh, as we do that, um, I want to read uh, Paul's prayer in 1 Thessalonians 3, 11 through 13. That's kind of transitions us to where we're at. So after Paul has been worried about them, tells them the backstory, hears that their faith is going well, he, he says this prayer, Now may the God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all of his holy ones. And that's his prayer at the end of First Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, verses 11 through 13. So here's that transitional moment where Paul's you know, rejoicing uh, that their faith is, is, is continuing in the midst of that adversity, and he wants to encourage them all the more. And he really does set up uh, in these couple of verses uh, where he's going to go in chapters 4 and 5. And his concern is that we continue uh, to advance in our faith even in the midst of some of those challenges. And so we're going to look at kind of three areas uh, that Paul challenges us to advance in our faith as we get into chapters 4 and 5. So if you have your notes, this is where uh, there's some time to follow along. If you'd like to do that, uh, feel free uh, as we get into these next few sections. And so uh, just a few practical things that he challenges with in terms of the need to advance in our faith, even in the midst of the adversity in our lives. The first thing he says is we need more holiness. And let's read uh, chapters 4, 1 through 8. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, the, these sections will be up on the screen uh, for you, but I encourage you to follow along if you've got them. So all of that leading up to chapter 4, it says, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. <clears throat> For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother and take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live holy lives. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. And so the first thing is that we're, God wants to encourage us. We need more holiness in our lives. And so uh, that, that concept of more and more, he says that you know, we want to make sure we're living in a way that glorifies God. Uh, and we're going to see as we get into this again that God's given his life for us. Uh, and in response to that, we live our lives for him and for his glory in a way that's pleasing to him. And, and part of that is growing in Christ-likeness, growing in holiness. That word holiness, we, we kind of tend to think of that and that holier-than-thou kind of uh, attitude where we're looking down on everybody else. We set ourselves up as better and we look down on everybody else. That's not what holiness is really all about. Uh, the, the word really means set apart, 
consecrated, sanctified. It means we're, we're now set apart from, from the world to serve and honor God with our lives. And so we need to see ourselves uh, in that way. We're not to continue on in the ways of the world, but we're set apart to live differently. And so uh, that idea of sanctification, you know, we, we have salvation, sanctification, right? Those are big spiritual words. Salvation is when we put our faith in Christ, who died on the cross for our sins, and we're born again uh, through him to, to new life, to eternal life, and a relationship with him. Sanct- that, that's a one-time thing. It's when, once we place our faith in Christ, it's done. Uh, we're guaranteed that relationship with him and spending eternity with him forever. Sanctification is that process of being made more and more holy, more and more set apart, more and more devoted, more and more consecrated, more and more like Jesus. And so that's the whole idea when we're talking about more holiness. And so there's that expectation that we're going to continue to grow. It's so easy to think, okay, I'm saved, I'm good, God loves me no matter what. And that's true. But if we understand that he loves us that way, there's that, that, under, that prompting that we want to continue to, to be more like him and grow uh, so that we can honor him, uh, as Paul said, uh, that we live to please God. Uh, and so we want more and more holiness. He gives a couple of examples uh, in the midst of this. One is to avoid sexual immorality. Uh, in that day and age, uh, not much different than today's day and age, sexual immorality uh, is, is just a rampant thing. Uh, and the, the challenge is, you know, church gets a bad rap when it comes to sexuality because we're always talking down to it. You know, avoid sexual immorality. Well, sex is a gift from God. We're not going to get into this isn't a big message about that, but it, God created us as sexual beings. It's a gift from God, a good thing that we are to uh, embrace and enjoy in the midst of his plan. Uh, one man, one woman in marriage together, enjoying that gift that he's given us. But what happens is we take God's gifts and God's plans and we distort them and twist them around and, and then we're doing stuff uh, that's not healthy or good for us and it's not honoring to God. And so that was happening uh, in their culture. It's happening in our culture. And we have to understand we can't excuse that. PD shared a story, I think it was just last week, you know, that, that illustration and idea of someone was talking about uh, the problem of people cheating, you know, in relationships. Well, let's just remove that as a problem. Let's just say it's fine. It's normal. Everybody does it, right? Well, no, that's not fine. We're set apart. We're not to follow the sinful and, and selfish ways of the world. We're supposed to live according to God's ways because his plan's better. Even if we can't see it, his plan is better. And so we're set apart. We're to pursue holiness more and more. And one of those areas is avoiding sexual immorality uh, in our lives. So uh, that's one thing he talks about. The second thing that he talks about is learning self-control. And he's, he's using that in that same idea, don't, not being uh, driven by our lusts and our passions, right? Uh, but using self-control. And you can apply that in lots of areas even beyond sexual immorality in our lives uh, when it comes to that because we're selfish beings and we justify all kinds of things. And learning self-control uh, isn't just about, you know, I want to appear good and better than everybody else. It's about Again, getting back to God's plan for what he knows is best for us, how he's created us to live uh, and being more and more like Christ. And in the midst of that, uh, we're going to experience more fulfillment, more joy, more enjoyment and pleasure than we ever thought we could by doing things uh, our own way. And so when we're thinking about advancing in our faith, uh, Paul's encouraging them. uh, Even in the midst of challenges, it's important to advance in holiness. Set yourself apart to serve God, to honor him with your life in, in every way. And these are just a couple of ways that he uses uh, as examples. 
Uh, and ultimately, that, that, again, that sanctification uh, he talks about, we're not, if we, we reject this teaching, we're not just rejecting man, we're rejecting God who gives us our, his spirit. His spirit is at work in us, bringing about that sanctification and growth. And sanctification happens as we cooperate with and walk with the spirit instead of rejecting that and doing things our own way. As we walk with him, he's going to renew us and make us more like him from the inside out. And that's where we'll see more and more holiness taking place uh, in our lives. So the second thing, uh, as we get into uh, verses 9 through 12, is more heart. Let's read those verses. It says, Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. That's some good encouragement there, right? And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. See where the more comes from. There's that idea. They're doing well in this area, right? But we can always do better no matter how well we're doing. And so he's, he's thanking them. He's encouraging them. He's giving them props for their love for one another and for the believers throughout the region that they're in. But he's saying do it more and more uh, to grow in that area. And I think I see two things in this passage uh, that stands out to me. I'll finish this section. Uh, verse 11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. More heart. We want to see more and more. Even if we're doing good in this area, we want to keep advancing in that area. Two big things in this passage. Loving God's family. That's something we talk about here at Oakwood, right? We are a family. We're, we're not just people who come together once a week in the same building and go home on our own. We should be a family loving one another deeply. It's our love for one another that should set us apart, that people should see God's love because of the way that we love one another. That should be a defining characteristic of our lives as individuals, as a church family. And so that's something he's saying more and more, do that well. If we do that, it's going to draw people to Jesus. Because they're not going to see these holier-than-thou people that are just trying to say, look at how good I am. You need to be as good as I am. That's not what it's about. We're to love each other and to love God. And as we do that, we'll draw people to him. So loving God's family uh, is definitely uh, something we want to do more and more. And the second thing uh, I see in this passage is that we're to live to win outsiders. It depends on what version or translation you're looking at as to how they translate that. Uh, the Greek word really kind of means properly or decently uh, in a technical sense. Uh, and I think that's how the ESV uh, translate it, you know, translates it properly. Uh, others would say decently or in, in a becoming, live in a becoming manner. I actually like the way that the uh, NIV translates it here uh, where it says... Uh, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. I think that's the heart behind what Paul's saying, and that's what the NIV is trying to do, is to capture that thought and the heart behind what Paul's saying, that we're to live our lives in a way that draws outsiders to us, that wins the respect, that earns the respect. So he says some other things in the midst of that. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your hands, not being dependent on anybody. And, and the concept there, idea is being able to be generous you know, with those. But we're living to win the respect and ultimately to win over uh, to the gospel people who are outside of the faith. Outsiders uh, are no less important than those that are inside. We're supposed to love God's family well. Uh, that's, that's our family. But we're supposed to love those outside of the family too. They're not enemies they're, they're the ones that Jesus wants us to go and love 
just as he came to this world to love us. And, and so that, that should be our heart, that we're living in a way to win them over, not to judge them, not to make them feel bad, not to argue with them, not to punish them, all those types of things. We're to live in a way to win them over to Christ. And so we need more holiness as we advance in our faith. We need more heart, loving the family and living to win outsiders. And the third one, and this really is a big heart behind the whole letter they wrote, that so we need more hope. We need more hope uh, in our lives. And we'll pick that up uh, in the last section here in uh, chapter 4 and, and then on into chapter 5 a little bit. A little bit. So chapter 4, 13, he says, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of the men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel uh, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so that we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. We'll read the, the first few verses of chapter 5 here in a little bit, but we need more hope as we advance in our faith. And you think about what we talked about, Scott O'Grady behind enemy lines, he clung to that hope, his faith in God, his faith that uh, his family wouldn't forget him back home, that his military friends were, were searching for him and were going to do everything in their power to come and, and rescue him. Uh, the Thessalonians here were struggling with something, and as you get into 2 Thessalonians, you realize they continue to struggle with it. The idea of, of what's going to happen if we die before Christ returns or when is Christ coming back, all those types of things, they're going to continue to wrestle with that idea. And we're not really going to get into a big eschatological end times kind of discussion this morning because I don't think that's Paul's heart in the midst of that. I'll just tease you that PD will be starting his Revelation series soon and we'll get into more of those details uh, we, when we get into that. But I think in the midst of this, Paul's concern uh, ultimately is that we, we grieve with hope. We don't grieve. We, again, we're, we're set apart. We're different from the world. We don't grieve as those who have no hope, he says, because Christ came and he died and he was raised again and he's coming back for us. And because of that, we can have hope. And, and he's kind of clarifying for them, the people who, have, who are asleep, people who have died already are in the ground uh, in, in that sense, that they are not without hope either. God, Jesus is coming back. There's going to be a physical resurrection of the body and we're going to spend eternity forever. Those who have died, those who are still alive, we're going to spend eternity with our Savior. And so the reality is, is our hope hinges on the fact that Jesus is coming back. We can grieve with hope because the death and the resurrection and the fact that he's coming back, we're going to have a, a future resurrection. We're going to spend eternity with him forever. Paul wanted to make sure that he cleared that up for them and he pointed them to the hope that we have in Christ. Uh, so we can grieve with hope. And I think as we get into chapter 5 and 11, he wants to make sure that we're living with hope uh, as well. So let's read that. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now, brothers, about times and dates, uh, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, that this day should surprise you like a thief. 
You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope and salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. All right, so we get into uh, this section, and I think he's wanting to make sure that we're living with hope. Again, pointing to the reality that Jesus is coming back. That's what we just said our faith hinges on, that fact that Jesus is coming back for us. And he's talking about in terms of dates and times, we don't, need, we don't need to write that to you because there isn't a specific date and time. We don't know. And anybody who claims to know is a liar. We, we are told very clearly we don't know. It's going to come like a thief in the night except for, again, we're set apart. We're different. We're not supposed to live like everybody else. We're supposed to live with that hope and that expectation. And he says a few things about the coming day of the Lord in this passage. He says it'll come suddenly in verse 3. He says, don't be surprised by it. In verses 4 through 8, and in that he gives us two pictures. Don't be asleep, don't sleep. Don't be caught sleeping when he comes back. Don't be surprised in that manner. Remain sober. Can't be self-controlled if we're not sober, right? And so those are some of the things there. And then he finally says, living in that hope of salvation. Again, he died for us. He rose again. He's coming back. We can live in the hope of that. That's the hope that we have as believers in the day of the Lord, even though, and you can read back through this in in chapters 1, 2, and 3, he's talking about the wrath of God that's coming. We're not destined for wrath. We're destined for salvation. That's what he said here in the midst of that. Those who are apart from, from God are destined for eternal wrath and separation from God. We're not. We have the hope of spending eternity with him forever. And so, you know, again, as I read through this, it kind of made me think about Scott O'Grady's situation again a little bit, you know, in the sense of living with hope over there. It had been so easy just to give up in the midst of what he was dealing with. I can't imagine. But you know, he tells his own story and, and talks about his hope and the, the reality, his faith in God, his hope that his family and friends would come for him, uh, and living with that. You think about the idea of not falling asleep. When he tells his story, you know, that's one of the things he really couldn't do for six days. He got maybe 15, 20 minutes of sleep a day. You don't want to be sleeping. For me, I'd be snoring. They'd find me in a heartbeat, you know. If I'm out there in the bush trying to hide, if I fell asleep, I'd be dead in a moment. You know, you, you, you're caught sleeping. They come on you and you're dead. It's over. And, and the reality is that's not exactly what Paul's talking about here. But we don't want to be caught sleeping. That means we don't want to be caught off guard. We know we don't know when Jesus is coming back. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be next week. It could be after we're gone. It doesn't. We don't know. But we're called to live in the hope and the reality that he's coming back and to live with that longing, with that expectation, with our eyes to the skies waiting for him to come back so that we're not cut, caught off guard and surprised by that. So that's what I think he means when we can live in the midst of our hope, to live in the hope of salvation Uh, that we have so we need more hope Uh, we need more holiness we need more heart as we continue uh, to advance in our relationship another thing that i thought of is looking at this situation in terms of not being caught surprised anybody in here a company cleaner 
company cleaner. And I don't mean by that that you go in the middle of the night and maybe and clean for companies. There are people that do that, right? They go into companies while they're shut down and they clean in the middle of the night. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being a company cleaner. I can tell you we oftentimes are company cleaners, right? So, you know, if someone comes over to your house and unexpected, right? Please pardon the mess. I wasn't expecting company, right? And so oftentimes we're caught off guard, you know, if people come to visit us. Our house isn't, isn't ready, right? And our house is a mess and we just have to say, oh, maybe it's embarrassing, you know? Oh, and I can remember a time when we're like hiding stuff in the laundry room, you know, like it was so bad, you know? Just trying to make it look a little bit better. Uh, it's been a while, but, but we still do that. We still do company cleaning. And, and I think that's the idea here. We don't want to be caught off guard. We don't want to be shamed and embarrassed when Jesus comes back. We want to be living faithfully to him in holiness with our heart for God's people and for those outside and living in the hope that we have because of what he's done for us and who he is. And if we're living in that way, we're going to be ready. We're not going to be caught off guard. We don't have to have shame and embarrassment when our Lord comes back and we're twiddling our thumbs or doing something else that's not honoring to him. We want to live in the midst of our hope and be ready. And so, again, today, uh, that, that big idea, we need to keep advancing, even in the midst of adversity. Uh, it took time to go through the, the story of Thessalonians. If this was a series, we'd have done it differently, but just trying to give you that o- overview, big picture. I didn't want to just get into chapters 4 and 5 without understanding, without you understanding the, the big picture of what they're going through and why Paul's writing what he is. They're going through real adversity, real affliction, suffering because of their faith. And yet they're, they're being faithful to God, and Paul's telling continue to advance, continue to more and more grow in holiness, grow in your heart and your love, grow and cling to the hope that you have. And today uh, in China, uh, you see all kinds of persecution. I think right now, uh, latest counts, they have about 130 million Christians. That's about 10% of the population in China, even though there's much affliction. Most of the churches are underground. There are some uh, government-sponsored churches uh, over there, but even they are fierce, uh, facing uh, persecution. You know, reading stories in the last year or two, uh, some of the pastors and leaders there have been sentenced to 10, 14, 17 years in prison, even in the government-sponsored churches, uh, for refusing to take down crosses. And some churches, uh, most churches have had the crosses forcibly removed from the building. Some buildings have been blown up and demolished uh, in the midst of that, even these government-sponsored churches. But most of the churches are underground house churches and fellowship. And you think in the midst of, of great oppression and affliction and suffering, there's death, there's imprisonment, there's beatings, there's all kinds of stuff going on. This is today, folks. This isn't just 2,000 years ago. This is real in our world today. And it's happening. And in the midst of that, you think, oh, there's no hope for the church there. The church is thriving. The expectations are that the church is going to double from about 130 million to about 240, 260 million in the next five or six years in the midst of the oppression and the suffering that they're going through. One of the guys that works a lot with um, suffering and martyrdom um, was able to interview some of the pastors who have been imprisoned there and ask them about some of their suffering and persecution. And this is one of the things that they said. They said, persecution is a gift It's not a gift of our choosing. We would never choose it. But it's a gift because it keeps the church pure. Think about that for a second. Persecution is a gift. How many of you guys would ever see persecution, suffering for your faith as a gift? 
but that's the reality of what's happening there. And when they went on in this interview, their biggest concern is that the church after them would maybe get too comfortable, that they wouldn't have some of the suffering and the persecution that they have because in the midst of that, in the midst of wealth, in the midst of blessing, in the midst of comfort and security, that's when the church starts to get lethargic and struggle. But in a place like China where there are, it's a matter of life and death if you're going to believe in Jesus as the Lord and Savior, as King of this world, He's more than the king of our country or their country or anyone else. And they're going to elevate him above that. That's what Jesus calls for, our allegiance to him above all else. He's given our lives for him. We live our lives for, for him. For, he's given our lives for us and we live our lives for him. It's a matter of life and death for them. Yet they're continuing to believe because he is the Savior and he gave his life for them and he loves them. And they're continuing to preach that message to others. And the expectation is the church is going to grow and it'll probably grow more and more if there's more persecution. We have challenges in our country, but we're pretty comfortable. We are starting to see more and more uh, adversity, more and more oppression uh, towards Christ and towards Christian belief. And I think we'll probably see more of that uh, over the next decade or two as we go forward. And we have to be willing in the midst of whatever is coming to live faithfully for Christ, to advance our faith and the message of the gospel in the midst of whatever adversity may be coming. God doesn't call us to stay comfortable, to uh, maintain a country that's going to be supportive of our beliefs. He calls us to be faithful to him and the good news of the gospel, no matter what's coming. And if you look back over the history of the world, every country or nation has always uh, fallen apart over time. Our hope isn't in that. Our hope is in Christ. And as we move forward, let's continue to make sure we're advancing in the midst of whatever adversity may come our way. We may come to a point where we don't have the freedoms that we have. And I know that that would be hard to swallow. Um, but we have to ask ourselves, what would we do in the midst of that with our faith? Would that be a, a thing that would kill our faith? Or would that be something that would force us to, to really think about the life and death decision that we're making as followers of Christ and the importance of sharing that message with others. So that, that challenges me as I think about uh, the perspective of, of what people in China are facing today as believers in Christ. And you read scripture and we think some of this stuff is so far away from us, but it's not. It's relevant to what we're facing in our world today. We want to live faithfully. So what adversities are you facing today? Uh, whether that's adversity for your faith uh, whether it's other things that are just distracting you from your faith. What adversity are you facing? What's God doing in your heart this morning in terms of prompting you and in terms of more holiness, more heart, more hope? I think about that, that this week in terms of what he's encouraging you to do from his word this morning uh, to live that out. Uh, over and over in this passage, he says more and more. You know, he just wants us to keep growing. That's God's heart for us. That's Paul's heart for us. More and more, let's keep advancing. Let's keep growing. And he says two or three times, encourage one another with these words. We need to spur one another on uh, to keep our lives focused on Christ and living faithfully for him, living in the light of the hope that we have and the purpose that we have. And so let's make sure that we continue to do that. Uh, I encourage you to read through Second Thessalonians. You realize that they're still in process. They, they still continue to wrestle, with, especially with some of these ideas of when is Jesus coming back and what does that mean for us. Uh, you can read in 2 Thessalonians if you want to this week and see some of that. But persecution just increased. It didn't get easier for them. Persecution got worse. And they still had to be faithful. And it may happen for us as well. And we're still going to need to be 
faithful as well. I want to leave you, uh, as far as a closing prayer, with Paul's words from the end of this chapter. This was his closing prayer uh, to the Thessalonians. He said, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. I invite the band to come up, and let's continue in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for Paul and his heart for uh, the church and for your people and for the message of the gospel, uh, his willingness to suffer for that, and um, just his authenticity in reminding us that uh, even if we suffer for that, Lord, it is worthy. You are worthy. Uh, help us to continue to grow and advance, that we would reflect your character and holiness to this world, not in a way that uh, elevates us above them, above them, but that draws them to you, uh, that we would love people well uh, and draw them to you in that sense too. Thank you for the hope that we have uh, now and for eternity through Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.